Welcome to the FPS podcast series. This is podcast number 37. We're going to talk about the Davis-Bacon Act. My name is Todd Hatherly, and I'm the Director of Programming for Federal Publication Seminars, and we're a leader in federal government contract training and professional development for the past 60 years. And every year, Federal Publication Seminars trains thousands of businesses, federal agencies, and individuals on legal, regulatory, and compliance and accounting nuances found in the federal regulations through nationwide classrooms, online, and in-house sessions. These podcasts are just really a small sampling of the content you, as a contracting professional, can expect from attending an FBS program. Whether you're in person or online or live and on demand, you cannot find another source with breadth and depth of experience, knowledge, and content anywhere. So please visit us at fedpubseminars.com for more information. Joining me today is Ted North and Scott Hecker with the law firm Cypher Shaw. Hi, gentlemen. How are you today? Good, Todd. Doing well. Thank you for having us. Well, thank you for joining. You know, today we're going to talk about the Davis-Bacon Act. It's been around forever, almost 100 years. And and I understand there's some new rulemaking changes that are coming down. So let's talk about what the Davis-Bacon Act is, what it covers, and then get into what might be the changes. Yeah, appreciate it, Todd. Thanks uh, for the opportunity to be with you today. Uh, Ted and I are looking forward to chatting about the Davis-Bacon Act and in particular, DOL's proposed rulemaking concerning the Wage and Hour Division's Davis-Bacon Act regulations. So, Ted, on that, what can you tell us sort of about the the Davis-Bacon Act in general and then what's going on with the rulemaking? Sure. So the act was passed as a bit of background in 1931. Its intended purpose is to protect construction workers by requiring public contracts to pay the local prevailing wage where the work is performed. Uh, to say it another way, it's really protecting those local workers from being underbid by non-local workers for contract jobs. The act applies to contracts in excess of $2,000 to which the federal government or the District of Columbia is a party to. Uh, that includes construction, which you know, underneath that umbrella might also include alteration or repairs of any federal public buildings. 52 years after that passage, uh, so in 1983, the Reagan administration reworked how the government would determine prevailing wages under the Act. They removed what they call the 30% rule, which was in place since 1935. So that original definition that they changed was a three-part definition. It stated, one, any wage rate paid to the majority of workers. Two, if there is no wage rate paid to a majority of workers, and the wage rate paid to the greatest number of workers provided it is paid to at least 30%. That's that 30% rule. And three, if the 30% rule is not met, the Department of Labor would use the weighted average rate. In 1983, they took out the 30% rule. Uh, now, nearly 40 years later, the Department of Labor is looking at this again and wanting to re-include that 30% rule. In some of their reviews of how Davis-Bacon has operated over the past four decades, they've noted that there's been an over-reliance on the weighted average rate in determining prevailing wage. So they're looking to go back to that three-part definition that, that I just went over to have that including the Davis-Bacon Act and its related acts, which it touches. Got it. So uh, what stands out to me there, Ted, is, you know, you're looking, I, I think the Davis-Bacon Act, NPRM, the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking for the regs, uh, was titled Updating the Davis-Bacon and Related Acts Regula- Regulations, that published in the Federal Register on, on the 18th of March. It seems a bit odd to me it's to, to modernize or to update uh, by going back to the rule that was in effect um, from 1935 to 1983. And that's almost my lifetime ago. 
uh, not to reveal how old I am, but <laughs> it, what I think what you suggested is this was this is meant to sort of move away from uh, reliance on the weighted average calculation. Uh, is, is that right? Is that what motivated this? Yes, that, that's so DOL in their proposed rulemaking uh, highlighted that as the real reason that weighted average weight rate and over reliance on it they say has made prevailing wages lag behind what the actual local wages are. They really hope that these updates modernize this law to keep prevailing wages on track with what real local wages are. Uh, and so I can go over a few of the other, the other updates to the law as well. So among, among the others, they have creating several efficiencies in the prevailing wage update system and ensuring prevailing wages keep up with those actual wages. Periodically updating prevailing wage rates to address out-of-date wage determinations providing broader authority to adopt state or local wage determinations when certain criteria is met, issuing supplemental rates for key job classifications when no survey data exists, updating the regulatory language to better reflect modern construction practices, and strengthening worker protections and enforcement, including the barment and anti-retaliation provisions. That's quite a list, and you know, a couple of them stand out to me. It sounds like the driver between those periodic updates is to, uh, as you noted, kind of keep uh, keep the wage prevailing wage rates current um, and ensure that that the, that's what's really being paid to workers here. I think the the supplemental rates for key job classifications is interesting because I think the goal there is to kind of get ahead of the conformance process. If you see the same kind of key job classifications keep getting requested. Uh, for conformance, it sounds like the department's going to try and get ahead of that and, and avoid that process by sort of setting a wage determination uh, or a prevailing wage rate in the wage determination for those kinds of key jobs. The last one you mentioned, you know, is interesting with, with strengthening worker protections and enforcement, including debarment and anti-retaliation. And that seems to be kind of a dual focus. Um, you know, you see the worker protections piece, which uh, aligns with uh, the Biden administration's approach, I think, to a lot of rulemaking and a lot of um, updates to their approach, it's really designed to encourage worker whistleblowing or worker complaints to involve these enforcement agencies where uh, where there seem to be issues, at least from the complaining employee's perspective. And then on the other side with the employers, uh, it looks like they're trying to harmonize uh, the debarment approach um, among Davis-Bacon and, and some of those related acts that, that it also touches, its regs touches. And I, I noted that in they added a section, a proposed section 29 CFR 5.18, that has to do with remedies for retaliation related to Davis-Bacon and the Contract Work Hours and Safety Standards Act. And that's one, Ted, you and I have talked about uh, and lovingly referred to as QASA, uh, something that folks may not know as much about. Uh, it's really an overtime law uh, that has particular provisions, particular coverage scope for these kinds of government contract projects, covered projects. And QASA, um, again, relates to overtime calculations and requirements of those. So it's something to be aware of uh, that the government uh, in this rulemaking is acknowledging that these will these uh, proposed remediation, remedial actions and relief for employees will cover uh, Quasa issues as well. And those include all sorts of things like reinstatement, promotion, back pay and interest, the expungement of warnings, reprimands or derogatory references, provision of neutral employment references. So, um, you know, there's a broad reach on some of that 
remedial piece. Um, and we mentioned also the debarment aspect. It's, it could be uh, applied more broadly when it harmonizes uh, with, if, if the proposed rule goes forward and it harmonizes the approach between Davis-Bacon and the uh, related acts. With, uh, with all the sort of infrastructure spending that's, that's coming down the pike, Ted, anything, you know, do you see sort of an increase in, in Davis-Bacon issues going forward? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, what you just covered alludes to the larger point that these revisions for the Davis-Bacon Act are really just a piece in a much larger puzzle. Over the past year, we've seen the administration really make a push uh, towards infrastructure spending and, and related to that, uh, you know, revisions and revising labor laws and strengthening that labor sector. It's been a huge point and focus of the administration. Uh, you know, as you were just referencing the bipartisan infrastructure law, or the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act for those following along in the, in the peanut gallery is uh, is looming on the horizon. That's going to be $1.7 trillion of infrastructure spending. And a lot of those contracts are going to implement, or implicate the Davis-Bacon Act and the related acts. Uh, and for context, really, of, of how big these revisions are and how big they're going to be, the Davis-Bacon Act touches about 71 other related laws. I mean, last year, it was about $217 billion worth of contracts for a federal construction contract. Its reach and its impact is massive. In addition to this infrastructure spending, there's also certain issues that employers should be aware of, things like how it's going to affect future project labor agreements or PLAs on federal contracts that are covered by the Act. And as we know and have discussed previously, the administration just issued an executive order on February 4th. Uh, discussing PLAs in their role. So, you know, like I said, this is really uh, one piece in this larger puzzle, and it just fits in, you know, with the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, with PLAs. Uh, so employers should be very wary of making sure they're compliant and making sure that they're following what these revisions say as they're going to be bidding and performing on federal construction contracts. Yeah, definitely appreciated. Um, I think one thing also to sort of note is while these changes may uh, be directed at federal contractors, if you think about it, we've also seen the administration beyond sort of increasing the effort to get to the anti-discrimination, anti-retaliation kind of efforts with employees. You know, we've also seen efforts, non-legislative efforts, because there hasn't been success in raising the federal minimum wage. There's been efforts through through rulemaking or through um, executive action or the combination to pull up wages. And when you do that, private employers who are you know in competition with the federal contractors in the same sort of jurisdiction or general geographic area, you know everyone's going to run and and get their fifteen dollar federal contractor minimum wage um, that was established through an executive order and rulemaking by the Biden administration or, you know, their higher prevailing wage rate potentially uh, on a project. And those private employers will need to compete to keep up, to have a workforce uh, in a tight labor market. So it not only moves the needle on federal contractors, wage scales and pay scales, but it could pull up those private employer rates as well in order to compete and to, to retain and to uh, recruit workers. So the, the impact is kind of broader than just the federal contractor space. I know when you know we speak to clients, what we sort of hear from them is, I mean, they're all obviously working to comply and they want to do the right thing, but 
to do that, what they need really is, is clarity and time, clearly communicated regulatory obligations and sufficient ramp up periods to get these implemented, uh, these compliance systems implemented. It's the way to sort of hopefully communicate uh, that need and those wants uh, is to potentially comment, you know, consider if you're an interested stakeholder here, make your voice heard um, by submitting a comment on the NPRM, the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, because it was published on March 18th, the comment period 60 days. So you'd submit on or before May 17th. And the goal certainly uh, is, is to have the department hear from, from all of its stakeholders, including the regulated community and others impacted, um, so that they can take those comments into account and appreciate kind of the on-the-ground impacts of changes like these. Um, so I think those are kind of important takeaways for folks who are wondering what, how to do, what to do and how to, how to influence uh, the, the department's rulemaking here. You could certainly consider submitting a comment. And as, as we said, you know, just because you're a private employer, the ramifications of these changes could impact your operations as well through sort of forced competition with prevailing wage rates. So I think, Ted, I don't know if you have any sort of other salient points to add, um, but, you know, I've, I've enjoyed the conversation. Anything else that, that you want to sort of point out before we sign off here? No, you know, I would really just reiterate, I think I think what you said was exactly right in terms of its impact beyond the federal contracting space. I would just reinforce the, the underlying purpose of the law being to protect those local workers, make sure that prevailing wage keeps up with the real local wages. Uh, and make sure that employers are are cognizant of this comment period and really review what these proposed revisions have against their current line system to see if they want to make any comments. Just to wrap this all up, uh, what are some of the two or three salient points uh, contractors should be aware of uh, with this uh, this proposed rule change? Yeah, I mean, I. You know, contractors should be paying attention to the rulemaking and consider whether they want to um, weigh in through the comment process uh, to explain sort of their on the ground real world impact issues to the department as it listens and tries to finalize the rule. Again, it's a proposal um, right now. It's the notice of proposed rulemaking and, and comments are open till May 17th. If you want to have an impact on the rulemaking, you want DOL to hear um, your your questions or your concerns, you should consider doing that. Uh, you know, there is an impact here, uh, could be an impact here where the prevailing wage right now, you know, is is sort of 50% plus in certain circumstances, in certain, uh, you know, covered geographic areas. And, you know, using the 30% rule changes that. You get away from the weighted average, as Ted indicated, and you wind up in a place where it's not really a prevailing wage anymore, necessarily. Uh, it's not that 50% plus rule. It's, it's well, you know, 30% is good enough. Right. Um, so that could lead to uh, moving away from the weighted averages and, and using sort of a smaller uh, sample size of, of workers could, and I think DOL expects it to, lead to higher wages um, for workers. So government contracts are going to, you know, government contractors are going to need to pay attention to that when they're bidding um, and in their sort of operations cost analyses, uh, that, that's going to impact you. And then, you know, as we said, for private employers, they should be aware of this, too, um, because if if these rates go up, they're in competition for folks, people who are driving trucks on the construction site or working working on the buildings themselves and those kinds of things. Other construction, private construction projects uh, in a similar area that aren't covered by 
Davis Bacon, you may have spillover effect on the wage rates you'll need to pay to attract and retain a workforce. Thank you, Scott and Ted. If any of our listeners want to get a hold of either one of you, how would they do so? Uh, well, you can certainly find us on Seifarth.com uh, at Seifarth Shaw's website. My email address is Shecker. That's S H E C K E R at Seifarth, S E Y F A R T H dot com. And Ted, what's what's yours? And my email is E North at Seifarth.com. So that's E N O R T H at S E Y F A R T H dot com. Excellent. Thank you both for being a part of this uh, podcast and bringing us some updates on what's going on with Davis Bacon Act. We'll see how all this shakes out uh, in the coming months and years. Maybe we'll have to do an update uh, sometime in this fall uh, with, with the Davis Bacon Act. If you guys agree, Todd, thanks so much. Absolutely. And again, as always, if you have any ideas for podcasts you'd like Fed Pubs to cover, or if you have any uh, questions, please give me a call or email me at Todd at FedPubSeminars.com. Until next time, stay safe and read the box.